It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, July 5th. I'm Annabella Funk, and this is your KVMR Evening News. Tonight, the California Report brings us a look at the electrifier, as well as how Californians will be impacted by the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. In case you need an uplifting story, KVMR anchor Joyce Miller reports on a Grass Valley woman who manages to recover her stolen bike. We'll then take a look at local news and weather. For those wanting to dabble in the crypto coin universe, it seems that Bitcoin buyers might not be as immune to the dips in the market as they previously thought. Mark Cuniberti is here to give us all things finance with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. A fast-moving wildfire in the Sierra foothills along the Amador and Calaveras County border has burned nearly a 1,000 acres. The fire started yesterday afternoon near Vox Beach in Amador County. It forced about 100 people celebrating the 4th of July at the beach to evacuate to a nearby Pacific Gas and Electric facility. John Sullivan was one of those forced to evacuate with his family. He tells CBS 13 in Sacramento, when people tried to leave the area, the fire quickly spread out of control. It kind of took over the road in front of us. We had to turn around. Uh, we're all very positive that we're, we, we know that the worst of it's gone past us already and we're going we're gonna to make it home. And they did. The Amador County Sheriff's Office says the large group was able to leave the PG&E facility safely late last night. Now, more than 10,000 PG&E customers are without power this morning as the utility turned off some of its power lines over safety concerns. Hundreds of structures are said to be threatened by the blaze, but it's unclear if any have been damaged thus far. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Sticking with fires, California has entered the hottest and driest months of the year, and the Bay Area faces a treacherous fire season. KQED climate editor Kevin Stark has the details of the latest wildfire forecast. The potential for wildfire is above normal across northern and central California through the fall. That's according to a wildland fire forecast from the National Interagency Fire Center. Severe or worse drought conditions grip the vast majority of the state. Small grass and vegetation fires touched off across the Bay Area in June, where brush and trees rapidly dried out after baking under a series of heat waves intensified by climate change. Fire agencies expect cool ocean air and fog to limit the threat along the Bay Area's coastline and further south, at least through July. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. In other news, as of July 1st, millions of renters in L.A. County received stronger protections against eviction. KPCC reporter David Wagner breaks down the new rules. When it comes to L.A. tenant protections during the pandemic, change is the only constant. And on July 1st, the rules were once again in flux. A weaker state law went away and stronger L.A. county protections returned. That all means that, for example, an East L.A. restaurant worker who could have been evicted for falling behind on rent last month while sick with COVID will now be protected from eviction. Trinidad Ocampo with Neighborhood Legal Services of L.A. County says many households are still recovering from long spells of unemployment. Any type of protection that allows a tenant to affirmatively defend themselves against a non-payment of rent eviction is incredibly helpful. The county's protections will only cover lower-income households, but they could still prevent scores of evictions. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 17 percent of L.A. area tenant households are behind on rent. 
For the California Report, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles. Even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, there was a renewed focus on California as an abortion sanctuary state. Now, in the wake of the decision, we are expecting a wave of -of out-of-state residents seeking abortion care. But there are plenty of Californians who don't have easy access to abortion either. And a big chunk of them are from my home region, the Central Valley. Lauren Jennings has been reporting on abortion deserts in the Central Valley for the Visalia Times Delta and joins me now. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. So in the Central Valley, we know that there can be miles and miles between small towns and the bigger cities, especially in counties like Tulare. What do you see as the biggest hurdle for people seeking abortions in this area? Well, yeah. So geography is, I mean, one of the biggest issues that residents throughout Tulare County and Kings County and even Kern County, like all of those residents face that that specific issue. Most of them have to end up driving sometimes more than 45 miles, you know, just one one way to get to a clinic and others have to drive hours. So I would say geography is the biggest hurdle. In your reporting, you mentioned the city of Visalia's efforts to approve an additional Planned Parenthood to meet the needs of the community earlier this year. It sounds like it received a lot of backlash from pro-life residents, and that actually had some consequences. Can you describe the situation and what has transpired since? Yeah, so originally when the Planned Parenthood was approved to go in, the community or community members began speaking up, really. Despite this site not offering on-site abortions, most community members were speaking out, saying that they didn't want even just the label abortion kind of being thrown into people's faces throughout Tulare County. So that was one of the main issues. Um, One of the people who ended up speaking out against it also thought that parking would be a concern because there were a few parking spots and they own some of the nearby areas. And so they were afraid that if there were any protests, well, that their businesses would be impacted as well. So parking was kind of an issue there. But I would say um, when I spoke with Lauren Babb, she works with Planned Parenthood and the Marmonte area. They're still heavily looking at like every every week, every month for a location. So then that way Tulare County can continue to have this access. Um, it's still on their list of places where, you know, they, they recognize we need this, that it's something that's lacking here in the Valley and that they need to get it to us. And if not, we're just going to continue to suffer. And then what was the public sentiment in these more rural areas when the Supreme Court's decision was announced? For our area, I mean, we, ha- we had people from both sides of the aisle, I guess. Um, you know, there were people rejoicing for the decision and were happy it was overturned. And then people on the streets crying just you know, uh, absolutely devastated. And I think that there are people who realize that this will directly impact Tulare County because of their teen pregnancy rates. Like you mentioned at the start of this, although California is a sanctuary state, doesn't mean everybody here has access. And like if our areas are already, you know, overwhelmed, this is just going to become harder and harder for those people working there. That was Lauren Jennings, a reporter for the Visalia Delta Times. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Thank you so much. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Paint Care, now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, July 5th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In local news, the electrifier on the border of Amador and Calaveras counties initially trapped around 100 people in a PG&E powerhouse. At the time of this recording, the fire has burned over 3,000 acres. Yesterday, protesters in Sacramento had a different take on 4th of July. Hundreds of demonstrators took to the streets and blocked lanes on the I-5 to protest the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Rice's fire is 85% contained, and as of 7 a.m. Monday, July 4th, all evacuation orders for Nevada County have been lifted. In other news, the California Department of Social Services has awarded a $1 million grant to the Nevada County Food Bank, which has seen an increase in need from the COVID-19 pandemic. Tuning in to local weather and the AQI Air Quality Index. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight's clear with a low around 54, Wednesday's sunny skies with a high near 78. Tomorrow, the AQI Air Quality Index for Grass Valley and Nevada City is good with an AQI of 21. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight's mostly clear with a low around 42. The air quality for Truckee Tahoe is set to be good with an AQI of 7. And in the Valley, Sacramento, and Woodland, tonight is clear with a low around 59. Wednesday's sunny skies with a high near 84. Tomorrow, the AQI, the air quality index for Sacramento, is good with 16 AQI. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. KVMR news anchor Joyce Miller speaks on the prevalence of bike theft and measures you can take to protect your bike. Miller speaks to Grass Valley Local, who manages to track down her stolen bike with the help of a Good Samaritan. The website SoCalCycling.com estimates that almost 200,000 bicycles are reported stolen every year in the United States. Because it's such a common crime, lots of folks don't even bother to report their bikes stolen, and the vast majority of bicycles, once gone, vanish and are never returned to their owners. Meet Laura Gerhardt, a mountain biking enthusiast who lives in Grass Valley. Laura's bike was stolen in May in the parking lot of a movie theater in El Dorado Hills. My friend and I went for a ride and I have a bike rack on the back of my car. And so after the ride, we put our bikes on the back of my car. After the ride, they put their mountain bikes inside her husband's trailer and went to the movies. Both bikes were locked and and so was the trailer. After the movie, they reopened the trailer and they were gone. We were devastated because we're very careful about our bikes. They're a big investment and they're our passion. So did I say broad daylight in the parking lot, public location? It was awful. Laura and her friend called the El Dorado County Sheriff's Department, which said it didn't have the resources to respond immediately. You know, they don't send officers. It's not a big crime for them. (laughs) When I was talking to the the detective, I'm like, so you're not going to come and like dust for prints or anything? (laughs) We just laughed because no, of course it's not CSI. Um, You know, they have a big job and there's a lot that goes on. 
Happily, an officer did call back within an hour, and he wanted to know the serial number of Laura's bike. Sheepishly, she had to admit she didn't have it. She didn't even know her bike had one. So that was the first lesson, and here was the second. On the drive back to Nevada County, Laura's friend, who had also had his bike stolen, googled what to do if your bike is stolen, and found a useful resource, bikeindex.org. Laura explains. It's a nonprofit, and they are a clearinghouse. You can register your bike just to have it on there. I think probably bike people bike talk, and you can sell your bike through it. But the main thing of the website is they want to help people recover stolen bicycles. And so you register your bike, and you report it stolen. And then this site uses its network to keep an eye out for your bike. Laura registered her bike on Bike Index, had friends share her plight on Facebook, and then she waited. And then Tuesday evening, I was making dinner, and I got a phone call from some guy. And it turns out that the guy was Slavic. Yeah, so um, the way it started for me, I've been in search um, for a full suspension mountain bike for, for my wife. Um, I found one posted on Craigslist. That's Slavic Lannan of West Sacramento. Slavic loves bikes as much as Laura does. The Craigslist ad looked promising, so Slavic reached out to the seller. After a number of sketchy text interactions, the person who posted the ad sent Slavic pictures of a very nice bike, but the asking price was out of Slavic's range, so he begged off. But then Slavic got a text offering him the bike at a reduced price. A very reduced price. At which point I grew extremely suspicious um, that, you know, somebody would be letting it go for so cheap. Uh, Just sounds too good to be true. I put the information to Bike Index and in the search it comes back and I see that there's a similar bike that was marked as stolen. As I was reading through it, I started comparing the photos uh, to what was posted on the stolen ad on Bike Index and I'm finding a lot of similarities. Uh, Logging into my Bike Index uh, account, it exposed the phone number for uh, Laura. So I immediately called. I don't know. I said, hey, I believe I found your bike. So when Slavic called me, we didn't know what to do, right? Uh, Because I had reported the theft to El Dorado County Sheriff, we sort of split tasks. Slavic was going to, you know, we're like, okay, just get an appointment with him, with the thief. And I'll get the sheriff's department and find out, like, now what? Laura and Slavic were complete strangers, but they turned out to make a great team. Over the course of several tense hours, Slavic worked to set up a meeting with the bike seller while Laura coordinated with the El Dorado County Sheriff's Department. After being cagey to the very last minute, the person with the bike finally decided on a place to meet. Slavic arranged to get the afternoon off work and drove to El Dorado Hills from West Sacramento coordinating all the way with the detectives. Slavic said he was nervous and shaking, worried that the subject wouldn't show up and the detectives would be upset about wasting their time. But suddenly, one minute Slavic was communicating with the detectives, and the next, the party in question pulled up with Laura's bike in plain sight on the back of his truck. Slavic explains what happened next. Yeah, so as as they pulled up right behind him, uh, there's these three tough sheriffs that, you know, run out as the uh, thief exited his vehicle. They put cuffs on him. They apprehended the, the bike as well. Yeah, that's how it happened. 
Laura's bike was stolen on a Sunday. She got it back on Wednesday. One of the biggest miracles is that the alleged thief met with Slavic in the very same jurisdiction where the crime occurred. That simplified matters for Laura, who didn't have to get other law enforcement agencies involved. Chances are that Laura's friend's bike, which remains at large, has been whisked out of the area. But in this story, the biggest miracle might have been Slavic, the classic good Samaritan. If I was in Laura's shoes trying to retrieve my my stolen bike, I would want somebody to be able to help me out and, and do what I did. So bike lovers out there, here are the takeaways from Laura and Slavic. They suggest you register your bike on bikeindex.org, including the serial number and exact make and model. Be careful where you leave your bike because locks are easy to cut. If your bike is stolen, report it to bikeindex.org and take advantage of the anti-theft features on Craigslist, Facebook, and other social media sites. This is Joyce Miller for the KVMR Evening News. Mark Cuniberti gives us insight on the risks of investing into the CyberCoin universe, as well as the ups and downs of the financial market. All this and more, now on Money Matters. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuniberti. The latest news in the market resembles the 1950s radio disc jockey that shouted between songs, and the hits just keep on coming. Previous Wall Street darling stocks managed to get off the mat after being hammered down by 70, 80, 90 percent or more, only to be carpet slammed again and again by another brutal sell-off on any given day. Relentless is the word that comes to mind to describe this market. Crypto fans who dabble in the Bitcoin universe and thought they were safe are finding out that they too are not immune from the market's financial beatdowns. More than a handful of cybercoin dealers and marketeers have had liquidity problems in the past few weeks, with some halting or limiting redemptions. The so-called stablecoin Terra USD, which was supposed to remain in lockstep with the U.S. dollar, lost its mojo as it not only failed to maintain its peg to the dollar, but almost completely collapsed a few weeks ago. Now the news wires contain almost daily headlines that major players in the crypto universe are having some very serious financial issues. Warning multiple times cyber coins were vapor, I reiterate a dire warning again today that the whole cyber universe reeks of an out-of-control mania that will end badly. My opinion, of course. In fact, the cyber coin phenomenon is the worst mania we've ever seen when we compare it to previous price explosions in any other asset mania recorded in human history. Unfortunately, these types of liquidity headlines have a tendency to become only more frequent until the one headline that announces a total collapse of the asset in question or that of a major player hits the wires and causes an all-out panic wipeout. Not saying it will happen again, of course, as no one can forecast the workings of financial markets. But the whole thing is a very familiar ring to it. Since Bitcoin came to my attention about seven years ago, I never did trust it and have always been suspicious of its surviving in any really usable form. The coins themselves, called tokens, are not guaranteed by any government, and the market has grown into the trillions of dollars. It is estimated over $1 billion worth of Bitcoin accounts have been lost in cyberspace due to password loss or theft. The actual numbers may never be known. Never knew anyone who lost a bank or stock account. This brings another issue to light that bothers the heck out of me. Truthfully, I don't understand the whole cyber coin thing, how it works, who runs it, and all the ins and outs of this relatively new version of electronic currency. 
And frankly, I believe few people do. With trillions in cyberspace, no doubt there are many, many hands in the mix of which we have no idea of their moral makeup and honesty versus their self-interest. We also know that there are tens of thousands of very computer-savvy thieves out there running amongst them looking to snatch your coins. With no one you can call or ask for assistance from, an investor is at the mercy of this vast and complicated electronic universe in the Internet. Making matters worse, it has no checks or balances that apparently work right, and there is little or no regulatory oversight at this time, although some is pending by concerned governments. The whole thing is downright frightening to me. And finally, I'm surprised one of the reasons proponents of Bitcoin and the like tell me they want to invest in it, because governments can't mess with it, and Cybercoin's autonomous qualities, which means nobody knows you have it. Excuse me, but Bitcoin and other cyber currencies are anything but autonomous. A dollar bill or gold coin has no memory, which is to say what it was spent on is forever unknown to the next holder. Look at a dollar bill or gold coin and tell me what it has bought in the past. Cyber coins, however, being in cyberspace, forever maintain a record of where and when it moved and who moved it. This is the ultimate in a tracking history, should governments wish to install themselves more into the universe of cyber coins. That the anti-government and conspiracy crowd flocks to this anti-cash asset, where its record-keeping is airtight and written in stone forever, is to me more than baffling. The rest of the cyber coin tale remains to be seen. I have a feeling it's not going to end well. I'm watching the market so you don't have to. The newscast expresses my opinion only is not meant as investment advice nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this radio station, its staff, members, or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, and California insurance license OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberti. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, July 5th. To listen to an extended version of KVMR Podcasts, head over to our website at kvmr.org. kvmr.org is also where you'll find anything you may have missed on tonight's newscast. KVMR gets support from Rick K.A.L.B., Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983, providing wealth management and retirement planning strategies, also second opinions on current investment portfolios. On Spring Street, Nevada City, information online at rickkalb.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director, Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. Join us Wednesday at 6 p.m. for another edition of KVMR Evening News. I'm KVMR's new summer news anchor, Annabella Funk, signing off.